0: Hello, everybody. It is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope you're staying warm. The chill is in the air. The holidays are upon us a week away. And we have Sonny Pooney from San Francisco via Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who's also the co-host of Podcast Rock City and Growing Up Rock. Welcome aboard, Sonny. That's How are right. you doing?
1: Glad to be here, sir. Uh yeah, part San Francisco, part Wisconsin. I know it's weird, but you know, that's just how it is.
0: You got like that that cheese Hadi Krishna thing going.
1: <laughs> yeah, not really. <laughs> um, you know, the weather's good here too. it's, not it's too okay. Bad. It's, it's not, not too California. Bad.
0: Yeah. I would um go th- there's a place called uh the Cheese Castle that uh, many people go to get some cheese. So I know you're in and out of there, um, you know, because of where you work and everything, but if you ever get a chance to check out some good places for cheese, I suggest that. Yeah, I think I've seen it. It's on 94, right? Yeah, correct. That's it. Yeah, yeah.
1: I've seen it on my drive up on the way up to Chicago. So,
0: Well, I appreciate you doing this episode. I know we've talked a bit about what we were going to do and what topic ...that we were going to you know, have for this episode. We've decided on the legacy of Y&T. But before we get into that, since Sonny is appearing for the first time... ...we're going to ask him the same question everybody gets the first time they appear. And that is the essence of the show. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in... ...every rock fan has a moment. Whether it's a song, an album, a band, or a performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you, Sonny? Yeah,
1: I entered uh, a little late. Uh, I was in my, uh, I was 14 when I really entered the rock world, and I was an MTV kid because that puts it in 1984. And uh, I remember watching Paul Stanley jump through of fire, and I thought that was really cool. So every time that video came, And there was women and it was a cool melody and it was something I hadn't seen before. I'm like, I think I might want to do that for a living because there's girls and fire and you get to have fun. And so it was Kiss that hooked me. Uh, Heaven's on
0: fire. That was a great video. I, I still remember the interview on WMET during that tour. I think they were torn with Wasp on that album. And, it later became the back of a T-shirt, and this was about midnight on a school night, so I was, had the headphones on at a low-volume level, and I heard Paul Stanley. Now, I'm nine years old, and I hear Paul Stanley say, life is like sex. The more you put in, the more you get out. And at that time, I did not <laughs> know what he was talking about. I just heard the word sex, which was you know, growing up in a Catholic school and you know Irish-Italian family. I, you know, that word, you know, your ears perk up and I heard Paul Stanley say, say that and it just made me like the band even more.
1: Yeah. There was something about, uh, and I'm a huge 80s kiss fan. I know kiss fans have their own opinions about 80s kiss, but, uh, you know, that's kind of where I came in. So Paul has always been the guy for me. Um, later on, I became probably more of an ace fan than Paul, but, uh, You know, he was the guy who was up front, and he was the good-looking guy, and he seemed to have all the women. So, you know, when you're a teenage kid, it seems like a cool job.
0: Where did it go from there after Kiss? What was, you know, your next band, your next artist that you got hooked into?
1: Yeah, I went from – see, I kind of – I was into Top 40 already, so I was kind of a Prince, Hall of Notes, that type of fan – I went from Kiss to Iron Maiden, believe it or not, uh, and then from Iron Maiden to Y&T. So, um, my thing was MTV was basically my entire musical knowledge and growing up. Uh, and you know, you were basically force fed top 40 videos to wait for possibly a rock or metal video come every once in a while, unless you were watching Handbagger's Ball. So, um, I ended up picking up more and more. Rock bands later on, but uh, yeah, I really went from Kiss to Iron Maiden to Y&P.
0: Both those bands had a huge influence, too, on my youth. Um, I remember being at a neighbor's house, and I've told this story before on the podcast, and I think I've even posted it on Twitter, and I was younger, and he was older, and, and they were friends of my parents, and the kids were older than me and my brother, and I remember just sitting in his room, hanging out on a Saturday night, and he had this poster from the bottom of the wall to the ceiling of number of the beast. And, you know, being a young kid and seeing something like that, you're mesmerized. You're, you don't know what to think. You, you obviously know that there's some type of evilness about it because there's the devil at the bottom. And there's like this rock crowd that's rioting with pitchforks. You can see their arms and hands in the air. You've got this monster over the devil. And, again, growing up in Catholic school, that was a big no-no, and that's what attracted it to me even more was the danger element of it, what I wasn't supposed to listen to. And I've made jokes, too, as well, about having covert ops, getting a Ozzy Osbourne album in my house or an Iron Maiden album in my house. I mean, I had to, like, literally – put it outside the window of my bedroom, walk in the house, open up the window, pull it in, and then hide it under like this or that or whatever. But yeah, Iron Maiden resonated with me and then run to the hills. And then you saw the, uh, the, the video for Flight of Icarus and the Trooper. And of course, Y&T, which we're going to talk about today, that they were a huge impact on my youth and the, and the music I listened to. What was your first Y&T moment?
1: Uh, summer girl, uh, summertime girls video. video. Um, that really hooked me in, right? Because we were talking about 85. And then I remember I wasn't completely sold on them yet. I'd seen the video. I'm like, Oh, they're okay. And then you would start to notice Y&T shirts at high school. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And then the real genius movie came out and it was in a scene in real genius. I'm like, wait a second. I know that song. is not the same song that has the video. And then, uh, I remember being able to see them on Halloween night. Um, a girl that I knew, she goes, oh, we're going to go see y and I'm like, oh, I don't really know them, but uh, okay. And saw them on Halloween night, 86, and oh my God, hooked ever since.
0: They are a great live band. I saw them for the first time open up for Freely's Comet on what, I think that was the debut for Freely's Comet. And on the bill was- Yeah, White. 87, right? Yeah. yeah. And on the bill was Y&T and Faster Pussycat. And I was very young at the time. I was 12 years old. And a friend of mine, I slept over at a friend's, and his parents were out or whatever. And, and we, I don't know how we got down there. We, I know there was a part where we took the L, which is like Chicago's version of the subway, down to the Aragon Ballroom. And that show that Freely's Comet performed later became Live Plus One, which was the EP after the debut album, but I remember seeing Y&T in concert and just blown away about how good they were, like incredible, incredibly good. And you know, I had heard of y and I had the Down for the Count record. That was one of the first albums I bought. I was exposed to them, you know, via Mean Streak. You know, when I was when I was younger too, as well. I heard that song at the park. Some guys on a on a boombox playing it but they were always around and it's a shame. You know, we always talk about bands that should have been bigger and that is a prime example of a band that should have been out of this world in terms of popularity.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there's some luck, there's some timing involved. Um, and they just kind of missed the opportunity, honestly. You know, they got, we'll talk about it a little bit, but I I blame the record companies a lot. I think they were doing what they were doing. I think they wrote some great songs. I love all eras, all eras of Y&T and everything they released. I really don't, you know, have any stinkers. I completely stay away from. first two albums are a little iffy, but but the record companies they were on, it's just, they kind of, probably got there a year too late or two years too early or hooked up with somebody that, you know, something else was hot. So they were trying to make them something they weren't and it's just bad luck.
0: Yeah. I know Dave Menichetti has touched on that in several interviews over the years. I know he's talked about A&M records, really not knowing what to do with them and how to promote them and how to get them front and center on outlets like MTV I know he was very discouraged. I think the band was very discouraged by that because when you really look at that, the era of Y&T that was probably—I don't want to say their best—but you know, when you look at Earthshaker in '81, all the way through, I would say, down for the down for the count. That whole era of Y&T is so strong. I mean, Earthshaker. Is a great album. I never really got into Yesterday and Today and Struck Down, which were their first two albums. Um, I know, you know, most people don't really know those records, but they were for their first two albums. They were known as Yesterday and Today, and that was because from a Beatles album that was playing in the room when they were trying to think of a band name. The album was Yesterday and Today by the by the Beatles, and they chose that name for their for their band. And then they changed it. I don't know if the record label was pressuring them, but their fans at shows would yell, y and T, Y and t and that's how they changed it from yesterday and today to Y&T. But, you know, when you look at Earthshaker and Black Tiger and Mean Streak, their first three albums, um, and when you look at what the 80s music was in the in that time period, the early 80s was very raw and very aggressive, and... You know, you just look at, you hear those records and you're like, man, these are phenomenal albums, great songs. You know, it just, it just, it blows my mind that, you know, Dave Manichetti, who has one of the best voices in rock history and one of the most underrated guitar players, isn't talked about in the same sentences like John Bon Jovi or Joe Elliott or Sammy Hagar or, you know, we can keep naming names.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, like it's some of its luck and some of its situations. So if you look at First Shaker, Black Tiger, Mean Street, for instance, if they were an English band, they would have been part of the new wave of British heavy metal, right? And right. they would be loved for that. And that's why I think the UK took on to them so well, because the music was really the same driving melodic music that was coming out of the Priest and the Leopard and those guys, right? their American band try to break through so that doesn't work. Then, And you don't exactly have, out of the four originals, four poster-ridden, winger, Bon Jovi-type-looking guys, right? Then you've got this uh, monkey on your back that you've been around since 74, and Manichetti's even said that. We get to 87, and we actually have songs that can hit the radio, but DJs are like, oh, those guys are still around? Why are they still releasing music? You know, that kind of thing, versus... Just take the music for what it is. It's good stuff. So it's either 85 down for the count almost has to happen a year later, or 87 Contagious almost has to happen a year sooner, or they like start at Mean Street. And they're a brand new band, and they're the best things to sliced bread. Like all these weird things work against them.
0: It's very odd. Contagious is one of my favorite records of all time. I got that record while I was on vacation at the Tower Records in South Bay. I remember buying that album, and I wore that out on my Walkman throughout the whole trip. I mean, such great material, whether it's Armed and Dangerous, whether it's the title track, um, Fight for Your Life is a great song. There's so many killer tunes on that album, and it's sonically really good, too, as well. Um, Again, you know, you, you ask yourself... Why didn't they make it big? They also never really had a power ballad either, right? They never had that home sweet home or that every rose has its thorn. They never had that MTV hit. Maybe they didn't want that. You know, I know they brought in some, you know, some co-writers later on in their career to try to write more commercial friendly songs, but they never had that song where it connected with the female audience, And you look at all the bands that were popular in that era. They all had that connection with the female audience through the power ballad.
1: Yeah. And even if you go to the shows now, it's 65% male, if not more, just who they attract. And, you know, I Believe in You is a great ballad, but it just, I just, kills me that every rose has its thorn is well known and nobody knows what I believe in you is, but that's, that's a whole another topic that could go on for days. Right. Um, but I think, you know, by the time they get the Geffen and it's contagious, they got Aerosmith to deal with, they got guns of roses to deal with. White Snake is coming off the, I mean, just taking off like nobody's business. So they went from this label that had no idea what to do with them. To a label that probably knew exactly what to do with them, but then got bigger bands to do it with, they still get lost in the shuffle. It's just unfortunate.
0: Well, you you brought up an interesting point about them starting in '74 and DJs having this. Oh, you know, are they still making music? These guys are still around. You just mentioned another band, White Snake, who has a very similar history. Started in the you know mid to late '70s. You know, David Coverdale coming off the success of Deep Purple. A lot of their earlier stuff is not as well-known, of course, since the huge 87 self-titled album. Slide It In has a huge cult following. You know, the album that was released prior to that that doesn't get nearly enough credit. I actually think that's a better record than the self-titled album. And then Slip of the Tongue kind of got sloppy because the way it was recorded. But they were a band that had a lot of history, too, and for whatever reason, they were able to resonate and connect with an audience and you mentioned probably because they were pushed through Geffen because Geffen really was a machine back then. You talk about Aerosmith, you talk about Guns N' Roses. I mean, they knew what they were doing. I mean, they would, they would get their songs on MTV. You know, the radio would soon follow. And all three of those bands had huge hits during that time period. And Y&T, you know, maybe there wasn't enough room for them. I don't know. Um, but I, I put Contagious... And some people may call me silly for doing it or, or, you know, whatever, but I put Contagious up with White Snake's self titled debut album all day, every day.
1: Yeah. And uh, Black Tiger to me is the perfect album. I mean, it's, yeah. I have one album in my whole life that I've heard that I like better, and it'll always be number one to me, but Black Tiger is number two. And, that's with Appetite out there and that's with Whitesnake 87 out there and that's with, you know, all these, there's Slippery When Wet and all these albums that sold Diamond, some of them did. Um, I'd put Black Tiger up against any of those albums.
0: But Black Tiger was earlier in the decade though, right? I mean, that was when rock music was still in, you know, 80s rock was still in that primitive stage. I mean, I, you know, that was, I mean, I love Black Tiger. I love Mean Streak. The cover of those, of those albums are so iconic too as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I just think of their catalog, and I think of the band like Whitesnake, who was very similar, and maybe, you know, Whitesnake had bigger hair, and they, you know, presented themselves more, you know, to the female audience, because that really did matter back then, and it still does today. I just think that, you know, he really, when he when he talks about a and M, I've read several interviews with him when he talks about A&M, and A&M didn't have the financial powers back then to get your song in rotation, to get your song in the wheel on a radio station. And, they, and, and MTV, after their formative years, really started to do that as well. You know, they, they really started to, you know, say, hey, you want your video played during this hour or this time or whatever? you got to give us some money. And that's when a lot of these 80s bands were like, wait a minute, we helped build you. You'd be nothing without us. And that is also rumored to be one of the reasons why they pushed alternative rock, because of a lot of these record labels and a lot of these bands pushed back on MTV when MTV started coming with their handout in the late 80s and early 90s.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing that worked against them is they're nice guys, right? So, totally. like White Snake's an, yeah, an interesting situation because they're coming from England, right? So maybe maybe they have nobody knows who they are in the U.S., so they're kind of breaking as a new band. But Aerosmith, Aerosmith was known as a dangerous band that's doing all this coke and blah, blah, blah. And if it's not for Dream On, they don't make the resurrection probably in the 80s. But, like, you know, you get, you get a band that, the lead singer goes and kills a drummer drunk and all of a sudden they're the biggest band on the planet like it's I think part of it is that the the decadence of the decade and you being dangerous and women like the bad boy and you're singing about sex drugs and rock and roll well they had the rock and roll piece they had probably a little bit of the fun sex piece but they didn't have the bad boy image and they weren't you know out there well Leonard was but for most part, the rest of the band wasn't known for being all these druggies. So they end up being the good boy, you know, blue collar guys.
0: When I think of Y&T too, and I think of where they're at, you know, they're from Oakland, the Bay area. I think of another band, Night Ranger, who had a similar type of image, right? I mean, they weren't the bad boys. Um, you know, they, they had similar type of music like Y&T had, you know, um they were on mca records back in the day and i just think of how for whatever reason i mean you look when you when you hear don't tell me you love me and you hear mean streak you know those songs i don't want to say are are very similar but they they do have the same feel to it right they do have that you know hard aggressive rock and roll and you look at the bands and they're very similar image wise right i mean Night Ranger had two guys with short hair during a time where hair ruled. You know what I mean? Um, and Jack Blades is one of the all-time nicest guys, too. You know, when you hear interviews with him, Brad Gillis, of course, played with Ozzy. But that's another question, too. When you think of Night Ranger, Y&T, both come from the same area. You know, like you said, man, it's just, it's just great. They, they, they just couldn't catch a break.
1: Yeah, and Sister Christian, right, just sent them into the stratosphere. And I remember growing up in the Bay Area, and you would think that every Journey song and every Night Ranger song must be the number one hit in the entire world because it was on radio constantly. But even then, Y&T was not on radio. Like it was on KRQR or KBHS, but it wasn't on any of the top 40 stations. It wasn't on any of the... What they would call kind of hair metal, pop rock type stations—they'd play Bon Jovi and Cinderella and all those. Never played Y&T. Like you, it was almost an underground band on radio in the Bay.
0: And you think of the song, you know, in off of uh, in Rock We Trust, you know, "Don't Stop Running." And again, I'm going to use the same example. Compare that to Rock in America or "Don't Tell Me You Love Me." It's, I, I you know, <laughs> I'm just like, why not you know Y and T listen to All American Boy and Summertime Girls. I mean, I know you have Sonny, but whoever's listening, I mean, when you look when you when you hear Summertime Girls and you hear All American Boy, I mean, that stacks up with the Bon Jovies, the Night Rangers of the day, you know, the radio friendly hits. And again, you know, just you couldn't, you, you know, they they couldn't. Get on regular radio. I mean, I remember rock stations in Chicago, W M E T, um, W V D X would very rarely play Y and T. I mean, they played Mean Streak, you know, in the early eighties, but after that, the only reason why I heard, you know, or bought down for the down for the count was because of the Summertime Girls video and the All American Boy video. You know, they had a great version of Your Mama Don't Dance on that album you know, it just, it's frustrating because they're a band that, I don't know, it, it's, Dave Meniketti's like a poor man's Gary Moore, too. I mean, people talk about, he's got a great voice, he's got a great, great, you know, he's, he's a great guitar player.
1: Yeah, and it was good, his guitar playing on that uh, Halloween 86 show that I'm talking about that got me, right? I, I remember watching him going, okay, uh, oh, he's playing, uh I, at the time, I didn't know what a Les Paul was, but I'm like, oh, he's playing that guitar that Ace plays that I've seen in pictures, but I had never seen Ace play it yet. Uh, but, you know, I was getting deep into Kiss, and you would see pictures and blah, blah, blah about Ace playing. I'm like, I've heard those Ace records. It doesn't sound like that. Like, you can make the guitar sound like that? And that was what first connected me. And then I'm like, wait a second, who's singing? And I'm like, wait a second, the same guy singing? I've heard Ace sing. He don't sound like that. So I was comparing them to Ace, which sounds absolutely absurd now. But that's all I knew at the time, right? But uh-huh. when when I'm introducing people to y and P, I I usually give them my three favorite songs, which is Anytime at All, Don't right. Stop Running. And uh, depending on who it is, I might uh, give them Mean Streak. Depending on uh, who it is, I might give them Forever, right? It just depends on if it's male or female, if they're guitar-oriented or not. Um, but like any time at all, it should have been a hit on top forty radio. There's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't. I love
0: that song. I, yeah, I, I'm, it's catchy I, as hell, yeah, right? Totally. Like when you when you, you know you're telling me about it, and I start singing it in my head. And then you know we just got done talking with Night Ranger, and you and you you know I hate to keep bringing them up. But because they're from the same area, they're, because they kind of had the same type of vibe and image, you know, Night Ranger maybe had a little bit more keyboards in their songs. But, you, you know, you listen to Rockin' America, Don't Tell Me, Love Me, When You Close Your Eyes. I don't see any difference between, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking songs or music, but in terms of why Night Ranger is more popular today or popular back in that era than YT, I don't know why. I don't know why. You know you mentioned forever forever is a phenomenal tune, okay um i like uh rhythm or not from contagious which is i love that i love that song i love the vibe of that whole tune i like uh rock and roll gonna save the world i like straight through the heart um and of course you know mean streak and and uh i mean there's just so much in their catalog there really is.
1: And there's some fun songs in there, and and catchy to uh, catchy melodies, clever lyrics. Like I, I asked uh, Dave when we interviewed him. I said, "What is a tambali? Like I don't even know what a tambali is, <laughs> right? I'm assuming he's talking about breast, but I don't know. <laughs> what did he say? Right? <laughs> and, uh, he just said it's a you know it's a philism because because okay. we were talking to him about like when when Phil writes you know, uh, Hey baby, do fries come with that shake and rhythm or not? I'm like, are you looking at it going, do I have to sing this? Like you want me to sing this for serious? Um, but he said he just went along with it cause it was fun. Right. And you know, their videos were a little probably more goofy than most. So that probably didn't entice uh, <laughs> MTV huge.
0: But that was, wasn't it also during the time, I mean, you think about those goofy videos, you know, you think about movies like Better Off Dead, and you think about movies, uh, you know, those John Cusack movies, you know, early on, uh, I forget the name of the other one, they had a, the Honeymoon sweet songs in there. Um, there wasn't, you know, they had, you had Porky's, and you had Police Academy, and you had all those movies back then, you know, so I get the goofy vibe, right, because that was kind of accepted. Yeah, the, you know, those movies didn't exactly win Oscars either. Right. I guess right. we're not talking
1: about the grand But, you know, I, <laughs> you know, when I look at uh, videos, I'm talking about like the Duran Duran productions, yeah. right? Like some of the Def Leppard videos that were part, you know, fire, part medieval, part, you know, there's just a little danger to them. And there's a piece of rock that has to have some sort of, Bad boy rebel image uh, for people to get it. Sometimes
0: I mentioned, and you're right.
1: Night Ranger didn't have it either, right? But
0: Um, but you like you said, they had Sister Christian, right? Um, Yeah. And you know that's one of the biggest songs of that decade. And I mentioned it at the beginning of the episode, right? You know what what attracted you to Kiss, Heaven's on Fire? What attracted me to Iron Maiden? You know the danger element, right? When you're told not to listen to something when you're 14, 15 years old, 13 years old, 12 years old, you want to listen to it more, right? You, 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 you don't understand why it's dangerous, or maybe you do, but when you're that age, you're, the whole idea is to go against whatever your parents say, right? You know, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sneak it in the house and listen to it. So, yeah, you're right. They never really had that danger element to them. They had really good songs, they had a great catalog. It sucks because if that's the reason why they didn't do it, you know, I don't believe that there's one reason why Y&T is not a huge band, and there's a multiple reasons. You've even mentioned it a couple times too, like they couldn't catch a break with this record label, with that record label, the timing of their material when they released it. So, yeah, there's a whole plethora of things that you know you said that are absolutely correct.
1: Yeah. In the world of real life, right? Y and T is your uncle that had the same job for 35 years and, you know, worked at the auto plant and, and provided for his family and you knew where they were 99% of the time. And they had a poor group of fan- friends and poison was, you know, the sleazy lawyer that makes $2 million a year because they're willing to, you know, go defend anybody. And that's just how it is. Right. And, yeah, the guy who's doing the sleazy job, making two million dollars a year, and the other guy is respected.
0: That drives me nuts. You, you you made that comparison. I'm just shaking my head. How does a band like Poison? How does a band like Poison, who has a guitar player CC DeVille, who couldn't hit water if he thought of a boat playing guitar, you know? And 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 you put them up against Y&T and this band that has a song called Unskinny Bop. Is more popular than Y and T. The world is cruel. It's cruel, Sonny. It's, <laughs> it's cruel.
1: <laughs> well, we. I've been on the Monsters of Rock cruise a couple of times, and I'm going again uh, this coming year. But Y and T's on that cruise, and I will tell you, they are the band's band. Everybody wants to be on stage with Y&T, you know, Tesla was a headliner, Hannon's on stage with y like Jeff Scott Soto's there, he's on stage with Y&T, everybody wants to hang with those guys, but they're not the headliners of the ship, and they never have to.
0: That's like when... And
1: uh, I was going to say, and every time I go see them live, there's what, 250 people there, 300 people there, depending on a club in, you know, San Francisco or Sacramento, maybe you get four to 500 people. But you know what? Everybody knows all the song. Everybody's singing along. And it's like a cult. So I guess I'd rather have that than, than fill up a stadium with 10,000 people and nobody knows who they are. I don't know.
0: It's kind of like that with Richie Kotzen, too. You know, I've seen footage of Kotzen on those cruises. And you see all these other musicians, like, in the crowd watching Kotzen. They all want to go see Richie. And Richie's another one that has struggled with popularity and becoming relevant. I mean, his music is incredible, whether it's his solo stuff, whether it's stuff with Winery Dogs. And, you know, thankfully, Winery Dogs is getting him some recognition, but he's also in that same boat where he's had countless issues with record labels. And when you hear his music, you're like, this guy should be, like, selling out arenas. It's just ridiculous the way timing matters and who you're with matters in terms of record labels but yeah I mean there's a lot of artists that I like and it sounds like you do too as well that are, are are so we're so connected to and we love their music and yes it's nice that we can go see them in small venues and have that intimacy when you go see them but it's also frustrating because you're a fan and you want more people to enjoy what you like and you want you root for them and you want them to be successful. And it's kind of like a double-edged sword, but, you know, it, it just is reality, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, when I share my top 10 with people, my top 10 band slash artists, uh, you know, there's some huge names on there and people go, oh, I know who that is. And then there's some names on there, like, who is that? And Richie Coxon's obviously on that list. And it drives me crazy that people don't know who Richie is. That is a lot of self-infliction, though, on Richie's. When he's, You know, he likes doing what he's doing. He likes doing it his way, and he really doesn't want anybody telling him what to do. Now, if he would have got bigger when he was in his 20s, maybe that changes. But now that he's in his uh, 40s, that's not changing. Um, so I, I think you have a span in time where, especially in this music, you had an opportunity. If you missed that opportunity it was over before it began.
0: Correct. Yeah, that's a great observation. We haven't even talked about Ten, which is one of my favorite records. That was released early 90s, I want to say. Um, yeah, 1990, I think. Yeah, and and just, I mean, that whole record, I, oh, I, I remember when I got that, I fell in love with that record. I mean, the song Ten Lovers and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and She's Gone. Ah, uh, you know,
1: <laughs> it's like <laughs> by that time Geffen's done with him, so <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, I read that one interview where like Geffen didn't even want to put out another single, and it just seemed like I honestly think that if the same type of movement had happened where artists kind of controlled you know what was put out and when it was put out, and they kind of had their control of their own stuff, y and t would have been way more successful, okay um if they had it back then now if they started out it would be very difficult just like every other new rock band that starts out they really got to you know pound the pavement and work really hard but if they were ha- if they had more control over what happened i mean i can imagine them leaving a&m who they you know which frustrated the hell out of them going to geffen you have to say to yourself wow i'm with geffen geffen's a machine this is going to be big for us and then they don't do anything with the promotion for contagious and they do almost next to nothing with Tent. and i don't know i don't know it's it's too bad
1: it really yeah is. it's interesting with the geffen thing cuz it comes up a little bit on the new documentary they just released so uh, nice dave talks about he talks about the uh, calladner saying hey come to geffen UBU, we want you to release a, you know, uh Earthshaker, Black Tiger Main Street type album. We're not gonna tell you exactly what to do, blah, blah, blah. Then comes all of these outside writers. And then even in the documentary, Kalodner says, I wanted them to be Bon Jovi. And Manichetti says, Kalodner said that? He never told that to me. Right? So even with a guy who brings
0: them and says UBU didn't mean it. Well, if you read the history too with Kalodner and Richie Cotton, I mean Kalodner almost screwed him over too as well with his first record, uh, Mother's Head Reunion, and how he didn't want him to have female backing, you know, uh, singers on the record, and they were going to kill that record. They were he was going to make it, and they were going to do nothing with it. And it was it was Kalodner that that tried screwing Richie over because Richie wanted to do kind of an R&B-type feel album. I don't know. I mean, you know, you hear of the story with Y&T, and I mean, how many other stories are out there, too, with Collagen basically, you know, screwing over bands that weren't named Guns N' Roses, Aerosmith, and Whitesnake?
1: Yeah, and that's where I kind of come into, the record companies had a time and place. Um, They probably massaged all the music I listened to, And I'm into a lot of those bands and a lot of that music because of the record companies. That being said, man, I feel bad for some of these guys that just never really took off. Like, you know, for me, Striper should be absolutely huge. They should be huge now. And they're playing the same place as Y&T's playing. But I'm now in my 50s and I get to see these guys up close and personal. And, you know, I guess at least they stood the test of time, even... In the documentary, Dave says, "You know, would I have rather been Poison or Rat and burn out after three albums and nobody knows us, and then I gotta scratch myself, you know, scratch my way back, but I can't play abroad because nobody buy my tickets, et cetera. He's got a good point because they played 20 some odd dates this year in Europe. They still play two two dates in Japan
0: this year. Y&T did I don't see Poison going to Japan? Another thing, too, is their legacy with their original members. You know, Philip Kenmore. I know some of the guys didn't play on the first two records when they were called yesterday and today. But Leonard Hayes and Joey Alves and Philip Kenmore, you know, when you, when you think with you know about Dave Menachetti, and, you know, he's got to be on stage and he looks around, and you know, he's playing with good musicians now, and I don't want to take anything away from those guys. But that's got to, you know... I don't want to say sadden him or, or whatever, but you have to wonder what he thinks when, you know, he's still flying the flag for Y and T and none of the guys that help build it are around anymore. That's got to be, it's got to be something to take, you know? Yeah. And he, uh,
1: he's always said that in interviews that those three guys were key cogs. I think Phil is the guy that he misses the most. I think Phil is the person he connected with the most. They wrote all of those hits together. Uh, Joey had, you know, part in some, and Leonard had his part in some, but really it was the Phil and Dave show, and when Phil passed is when um, Dave took it pretty hard. But, I mean, Steph Burns, I remember seeing them live with Steph Burns taking over for Joey Alves, and now they got two lead guitar players. And, uh, you know, that changed the dynamics a little bit, and I thought it was awesome. I really have not seen, um, in seeing Y&T over 50 times now, and I've seen all incarnations, I've not seen a band on stage labeled as Y&T and they disappoint. I haven't seen it no matter who was in the band.
0: I have to agree with that. I've seen them a few times. I first saw them, like I mentioned, with the Ace Freely, uh, Freely's Comet Band. I saw them early 90s, I want to say. Um, late '80s, early '90s, probably. I think it was. I think it was the Ten record I saw them on. Um, and then I recently saw them here in St. Charles, Illinois, about a year and a half ago. And uh, I agree, man. They, they, uh, they do not disappoint. They sound incredibly. You know, I would love to, because I've seen, and I hate to keep bringing them up, but I've seen them. I've seen Night Ranger too, and they're a phenomenal live band. I'd love to see those two bands tour together.
1: Yeah, I think the hard part is they're going to pretty much draw the same crowd. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen them together. Uh, being in the Bay, you know, you could see Night Ranger or Y and T anytime you wanted. And, uh, I've seen them open for the Journeys and the Bad Companies. And I've seen like the Faster Pussycats and the Cotswains and the Teals and those guys open for those bands. And I saw that Philly's common tour, by the way, but in, uh, California, Y and T headlined. So there was a co-headlining tour across the country. And seeing Ace and Y and T on the same night, that was that was uh that was a definite treat for sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that would be interesting seeing YNT and Night Ranger. I guess I saw them in twenty fifteen because they were on the Monsters of Rock Cruise together. So I guess I
0: did kind of see them one time together. How is that Monsters of Rock cruise? I've I've often contemplated going on it and, and going to it. How is it?
1: It is unbelievable. It is um, well, it depends on how you take it. So like last year, for instance, over 50 bands, you get two pre-parties, you're on the water for what, five days, four nights. The bands start playing at like 11 o'clock. They don't stop till like one o'clock in the morning. You have to pick and choose uh, who you're going to go see. You get the entire schedule for the entire trip ahead of time. So you can, you know, there's people that highlight stuff and start doing spreadsheets and blah, blah, blah every band plays twice. So you can, uh, so you can kind of manage, okay, if I'm going to see YT on Wednesday night and I want to see him on Thursday night, then I'm going to miss Tesla. So if I want to see Tesla, I got to see him on Tuesday night. So you got to, you know, anybody you want to see twice, you highlight those guys and try to fill around. Um, it is an amazing, uh, 3000 people that couldn't be more chill no show has more than a thousand people there basically because there's so many things going on at the same time. Uh I got to play uh Blackjack with Noodle Bettencourt. I got to play um roulette with Kip Winger. Uh my wife played roulette with Kip Winger. Be careful. Um Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had to be careful. She called me over there. She's like, uh, can you sit in between? Um but uh you know, I've had drinks with Richie. I've had drinks with Mark Sriracha from Crocus. Like, there's just, there's people you meet. It is unbelievable. Uh, basically, seven days with all the pre-parties and everything. Now, I'll come off that Monster Rock cruise, and I will be so re-energized because I basically lived my hobby for seven days. My partner, Stephen Michael, who does a Growing Up Rock with me, Growing Up Rock podcast with me, he needed a vacation from his vacation because he came back going, I'm tired. We didn't sleep. We didn't eat. All we did was do shows. I'm like, yeah,
2: isn't it great?
1: And he's like, no, I'm looking for a few days off. <laughs> so it just
0: kind of depends on how you look at it. Where do you go? What are the stops?
1: Uh, it depends on the year, but uh, it's usually either leaving from like last year, left from Miami. This year leaves from Fort Lauderdale, usually goes to like uh, maybe an Island of the Caribbean or, or connects to like a private Island. I don't, there's been one year I didn't get off the ship at all because Lita Ford and Honeymoon Suite only played when they were at dock. So everybody left to go see Faster Pussycat. And I was like, uh, I'd rather stay and see Lita Ford and Honeymoon Suite. Um, last year I caught off the boat, though, and uh, it was okay. Um, but uh, usually the stops aren't huge for me. It's a huge for other people. But uh, I'm there to see the band.
0: I would be, too. I don't know if I would I would get off the ship as well. I mean, I'd be just like, whatever. I just want to check them out and, uh, and, and see. Because there's a lot of bands I haven't seen in decades. There's some bands. What's really cool is when I see the the the, the bill is there's some bands that really can't do a tour, you know, like a Taiketo or like a Salty Dog. You know, I've seen them on the bill a couple of times or, or whatever. So they can't really do much because, you know... Not a lot of people are going to go see them if they, you know, if they have the expense of doing a tour across the U.S. I mean, they might get thirty people at a show at different clubs, but here they're able to play for a thousand people probably twice during the cruise, and they make some money. They make they 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 are able to support and themselves and, and make a few bucks while while they're doing it.
1: Yeah, so you know, great example. You're dead right. Great example is. Soto or Jeff Scott Soto. He, he can't sell 10 seats. He can't do a U.S. tour. Like he couldn't even do it after he got out of Journey. I mean, he's, he did like 15 or 20 dates, and he couldn't make any money. Um, Eclipse, they can't even cut in the States. People don't even know who they are. They were incredible live. Um, uh, Kotzen's very similar. Winery dogs do okay, but Kotzen on his own, he's playing small houses for sure. Uh, some of these guys only get back together to do that show. Like Lies, Deceit, and Treachery, which was three-fourths of the Bullet Boys, only did that show. Um, So, yeah, there's things on the cruise that you won't get anywhere else. But for the money and to see basically a 100 shows if you wanted to, uh, it's uh, it's packed pretty good. That first year, I don't remember eating. And I'm a big guy, and I don't remember eating because I remember having
0: time. I'm definitely doing it in 2021. I'm going to do it. I've been, thinking oh, there you about, go. I've been thinking about it for a couple of years and I'm like, eh, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if I can find someone to go with cause you know, my friends are either married or they're not that much into music like I am and I'm just, I'll just go by myself, you know, I mean, I'm sure I'll, I'll find people to hang out with and enjoy things with and, and, uh, yeah, it sounds like a, like an absolute blast
1: yeah it's uh yeah you'll find people that part's not a problem. my best friend's going with his brother they're staying together uh stephen and his wife are going me i'm going with uh two of the potter than hell podcast guys uh firemen oh my god those guy's are gonna be nuts. We're sharing a room um
0: so yeah there's there's uh you'll meet people that that is not a problem at all getting back to y and t and you know the current state of y and t do you, do you see any New material coming out from them? I know it's been, it'll be 10 years in 2020 since their last studio album.
1: Yeah, honestly, I honestly don't need new material. I liked the acoustic classics thing they did, which was an EP of uh, basically acoustic hits from their past. I'm fine with that. I don't really need new music. If you want to drop a single here or there, I think it's going to be very weird writing without Phil. Um, and I'm sure Aaron do a great job. I'm not worried about that part, but there's you know there's just a magic that um like a you know John Bon Jovi and Sambora have that wasn't there on his solo album. You know what I mean there's just and neither one Sambora didn't have it, and John Bon Jovi didn't have it. It was like it was missing something. yeah,
0: um,
1: so I don't technically need new music, and reality is why I mean they're they're gonna play for the same people, they're not gonna get any new uh listeners you're basically at the mercy of me telling my kids about it. My kids have seen them live and love them. My son is totally into Y and T. So you got one there. Um, so that's kind of how this band's probably going to live on. But after Dave's done, but she's in his late sixties, Y and done. I mean, this isn't, there's no Y and T 2.0. You know what I mean? So they probably got what five, six years left in them. And then Dave, um, you know, retires in the yonder and lives out his years. But I can't imagine him being out there 75, 76 years old, carrying the show because the other guys are great, but Dave's the show.
0: I imagine, though, as an artist, Dave Manichetti needs that outlet of making new music. I mean, you know, he's been performing for five decades, right? Four decades at least. And, you know, he's... Writing music, he's always, you know, he has to have that creative outlet. I imagine if for anything, a new album would be for him, you know, for for to get rid of that, that those creative juices that have been building up and material and whatever he's been writing about. Maybe he puts it out on a solo album. That's always a possibility. But I imagine he's got to do something to, you know, to uh, cure his, his his need for creativity.
1: Yeah, and I think um, part of the creativity piece for him is when he's playing his solos during the show every night, there's some that are tried and true. They do not change. Like the solo for Forever, Rescue Me, they're not changing. He's playing it no for no. what's on the album. But then if he's playing for I'll Cry For You or I Believe In You or he's ricking a little bit, he himself will tell you he has absolutely no idea where his fingers are taking him that night. So that's really where the creative juices kind of end up flowing through is through his guitar. I don't think it was ever through his words anyway.
0: If there is a song or a group of songs or an album or two that you would recommend to someone who's listening to this who's never really been into Y&T, maybe he's heard of them or she's heard of them, what would you recommend?
1: I would say that if you love high and dry better than you love Pyromania, then you wanna go to Black Tiger and Main Street. If you love Slippery When Wet more than you like Judas Priest, start it down for the count or contagious. Um if you want new newer, more modern sounding uh, but with a little bit of 80s flair, just start at Face and that'll, that'll get you going right out of the gate because there's some great songs on there. Um, so there's plenty of places to start. It just depends on what you're into.
0: What's your opinion on Earthshaker? Uh, I like it. Uh, there's there's
1: a few songs on there I don't usually go back to. Um, there's some classics on, on there, obviously, like Hurricane, et cetera. Um, but the, the three albums for me that I absolutely listen to every song without fail, if I even put the album on, is Black Tiger, Main Streak, and Down for the Count, because Down for the Count was my first Y&T album also. So those are the ones that if it goes on, I'm listening to the entire album. Um, Contagious is close, but there's a song or two there I skip, um, and same thing with Earthshaker. There is something that happens to Dave's voice when he gets to Black Tiger. It smooths out just a little bit more than what he had in Earthshaker. And by the time he gets to Contagious, um, he's at probably peak voice. Um, and even you can even hear it on 10. After that, he gets to raspier a little bit. So, you know, there's that bang zone of a rock singer in their 30s. He kind of hits that right around that time frame.
0: That's interesting you say that, because I've always thought, as he progressed through the catalog, through all the y and albums, his voice got stronger, his voice had more depth, it had more emotion in it um, than the earlier stuff, definitely.
1: Yeah, I think he himself would tell you that was confidence-based, right? That as uh, as life went on and they had a little bit of success, um, he was feeling better and better and better about his voice, for sure.
0: And then, you know, In Rock We Trust is an album that, you know, had more of a, I hate to use the word pop, but more of a radio-friendly flair, I think. Um, when you compare it to Black Tiger and Mean Streak, I, I think that's a perfect album that shows the evolution into Down for the Count. And I
1: agree. And I'm telling you, if you are a guitar player and you love that blues based rock you will absolutely love Y&T. There will be nothing you listen to from Y&T where you will not be astonished and amazed that you can have melody, you can have the blues bass rock, you can have a great vocal, you can have big backing vocals, you can have radio-friendly type hits that nobody's ever heard of. Anybody that's into that kind of music that I've introduced to Y&T, they go by the entire catalog and they thank me forever, for sure.
0: We didn't even touch on Open Fire. We haven't even gotten to their live album, which is a way underrated live album too, as well.
1: They've got several. Uh they've got Live at the Mystic, which is really good too. But Open Fire, uh, I think that was probably my second live album I ever bought. It's probably my second live album ever. Um But I'd already seen them live a couple of times. So I was like, Oh, I just I need that for the car, if nothing else. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, I've always loved open fire, and you know, especially you know, having to come out in the mid-80s, um, you know, when there wasn't really a, a lot of live albums coming out during that decade. Most of the great live albums were from the 70s. You know, when you think of their material and you think about how they present themselves live, it's a perfect album to get that experience if you've never heard them. because Y&T is an incredible band in concert, as we've talked about on this podcast. Um, and Plus, it also has all the original guys on that, too. You know, I mean, so that's something that you know, you'll probably never hear again. And, you, you know, so if you're ever looking to pick up some studio records, you can't go wrong, like Sonny said, anything from Black Tiger to Contagious. You can't go wrong. And if you want to hear what the experience is to see them live... Listen to open fire, you should always go see them. They're always touring. I mean, they they may take a few months off during the year, but they tour pretty consistently around North America. They also, you know, go do some European dates too as well. You know, Sonny mentioned Japan. They are a band that is out there. And it's not that expensive to go see them. And I, you know, I hate to say that as, as a sales pitch to a fellow rock fan, like, hey, you know, it's not gonna cost you a lot of money to go see them. But that's the truth. You know, I mean, if you really want to go see a great rock show where you're not going to have to take out a mortgage, like the Motley Crue Def Leppard tour and, you know, some of these other tours that are being announced here, and especially after the first of the year, from January to March, you're going to see all the summer tours come out. And let me tell you, everyone's seen those prices for Motley Crue and Def Leppard, and everyone thought that they weren't going to sell tickets. They are selling out shows. They are selling out shows at those ticket prices. So when you're a promoter, Live Nation, and you've got ACDC, who's probably going to announce a tour after the first of the year, wait till you see those prices. You know, Wait till you see the price for the rumored tour of Priest and Maiden. You know, So if you want to go see a great show that's not going to break the bank, and you actually can go out to dinner prior to that too and not feel guilty about the money you're spending, go see Y&T. I'm telling you, they, they, they are phenomenal, phenomenal band live.
1: Yeah, I saw them um, New Year's Eve last year. Frank Cannon opened um, in Sacramento, Ace of Spades, probably about 750 people. It was 35 bucks to get in. Frank Cannon rocked it. Y&T rocked it. they like played two hours that night. And I remember because the clock was on the wall, and it was running down to midnight. And I'm like, they just started a song and they're not going to finish this song before it brings midnight, right? So it was like one minute left and I'm like, why are they starting a new song? Aren't they going to do the whole 10, 9, 8, 7, blah, blah, blah? And swear to God, 53 seconds in, he stops and goes, all right, 10, 9, 8. Like, he was not going to miss that because he understands that people need that. And they just... Uh, started right from where they stopped after they said happy new year and kept going and played another four or five songs. So yeah, 35 bucks. I do that all day. Not a problem.
0: They're coming back here in the Chicago area in February. And I know my son has always asked about going to see them and I haven't taken him to see, you know, uh, them and them in concert. And it's an all ages show. And I think I'm going to take him. I think, you know he's he likes Y&T too. I mean, he I always catch him stealing records from me. Not stealing, but taking records off my shelf. And I always find Y&T records in his room. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, I want to. Yeah, ho- they're
1: playing. Yeah, they're playing this year December twenty seventh in Berkeley with James Durbin opening.
0: Oh wow! Okay. <laughs>
1: yeah, where's that at? Uh, Cornerstone in Berkeley. Okay. California yeah, on the twenty seventh.
0: real quick before we wrap up did I, do I remember this correctly did John Bon Jovi and Dave Manikati write material for one of Cher's solo albums
1: I don't know that I don't I don't know if Dave was involved in uh anything Cher's done I've not heard that before.
0: Or, you know, did Dave and John Bon Jovi collaborate on a lot of stuff? Because I know John Bon Jovi's a big Y&T fan.
1: Yeah, unless it's. uh, Unless they did something for We're Stars, you know, that hearing aid thing. I'm not sure. Bon Jovi was
0: not not involved in that. Oh, he wasn't in that, right? Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't in that. For some reason, like late 80s, I remember. Seeing lighter notes with John Bon Jovi because it was when Richie was dating Cher. And I thought I saw Menachetti on one of the writing credits for for, maybe it was the Heart of Stone album. And I think Richie or John or both of them produced it. And I know there's some sort of relationship with John and Dave. I could be wrong on that. I I may be remembering this completely. You know, incorrect, incorrectly, but I, I seem to remember that happening early '90s, late '80s. As soon as we're done recording here, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look it up. But I, I just, I remember that for some reason. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I remember that album, and they had you know Diane Warren and Desmond Child and Michael Bolton all over that album. Yeah, I don't remember Men of Kitty writing
0: any of it though. I go, yeah, for some reason, I know there's something that John Bon Jovi worked on. And Dave was involved in a writing credit or maybe played on the album or something. Um, And now I'm, like, racking my brain because I can't remember the exact thing. But, yeah, I remember that album, too. There was a lot of outside writers. You know, that was the thing, too, to get back to Geffen really quickly. When you think about Aerosmith, a lot of outside writers – Did Whitesnake do that on the self-titled or, you know, on the material after that, or was that all? I think a lot of that was Sykes that wrote a lot of that stuff for that self-titled album.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Coverdale wrote most of it too. Um, And then uh, Vandenberg had a good hand in it. That's right, that's right. I will tell you a lot of the music that I loved in the 80s has got Warren, Holly Knight, Desmond Child, you know, uh, Bob Halligan. It's got those kind of guys all over that stuff. And uh, because they, the big choruses, the big backing vocals, the hummable melodies, I mean, they had that stuff cornered
0: for a while. Yeah, there's some really interesting interviews with Desmond Child online that you could see about that experience of writing with Aerosmith and writing with Bon Jovi um, and other artists as well. There's Yeah, there's a really good, a couple of good interviews that when he was nominated or elected into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, uh, I know he did a lot of stuff with Kiss, too, as well. I think Heavens on Fire is written by, or co-written by Desmond Child.
1: Yeah, there's a few of them there. Um, I think it's Get All You Can Take. That might be wise but I can't remember now. But, yeah, Desmond was in and out of the
0: Kiss camp for a little bit. Yeah. Kiss really didn't have, an, you know, a lot of options after Vinnie Vincent left. Because, you know, say what you want about Vinnie Vincent. Vinnie Vincent can write a song and write good music. And when you look at Creatures of the Night, when you look up Lick It Up, a lot of that stuff is from old demos from Vinny's previous bands that he was in, you know, when he was recording. Plus also Kiss Kiss also wrote with Brian Adams and a few other writers too as well. So they really utilized the outside writers before a lot of other bands from that genre did. They were really on top of that because I don't know if they had a choice. You know, when you look at the late 70s Kiss and you look at, you know, The Elder and you look at Unmask, I mean, they were, I mean, Creatures of the Night's a great album, but I mean, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't give those tickets away to that tour.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, you have to change things up a little bit at who Vinny is as a person and what he's become and how he's handled his business stuff. I'll leave that alone. I love Denny Vincent Invasion. I love a lot of the stuff that he for kids. There's no doubt. But there is there is something about entertainers and sometimes athletes that, for whatever reason, they don't handle success well. And, uh, you know, like even in the athlete, like Josh Gordon just got suspended again indefinitely. I and mean, yeah, come on. I saw that. Like, you got the world in the palm of your hand. And is there something about they just, I think Gene's right. People, some people just can't handle
0: success. They sabotage their own careers, man. They can't get out of the way. Yeah. Well, in closing here, Sonny, I really appreciate you doing this. This was a great conversation. I've been jonesing for a and t conversation for a long time. And, you know, when I talk to some of my friends about Y&T, it's like deer in the headlights, so I really enjoy this. Um, if if you love podcasts, Sonny does a great job with his. Growing Up Rock, Podcast Rock City are both great, great podcasts. He does uh, an episode with his daughter, which I loved. I did a, a similar episode with my son about a month ago, month and a half ago. And I love when that stuff happens because... I love it when I hear the youth of today talking about rock music and how they connect with it. And if you are a fan of listening to music talk and rock music talk, check out both those podcasts, Podcast Rock City, Growing Up Rock. Sonny does a great job.
1: Well, thanks for having me today. Love your podcast. As soon as I saw that you guys had a Richard Cotton episode, I'm like, okay, who are these guys? (laughs) All right. So I had to go listen. And I've been hooked ever since, so. There's absolutely no doubt and uh, love being on today and uh, thanks for the time.
0: Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I posted earlier, you know, what rock podcast or music podcast has a YNT legacy show? And I'm like, this one, (laughs) this one has it. So, (laughs) you know, that's cool, man. Hey, I I appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much. Thank you for the time. Um, Have a great holiday with your family. And, you know, I hope to do this again soon, you know, in the year 2020.
1: No problem. Happy holidays.
0: All right, everybody. Once again, that's Sonny Pooney. This is Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Happy holidays, everybody. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. <laughs>